Welcome to the New York Historical Society's Public Programs Podcast, featuring lectures and conversations presented here at New York Historical's Robert H. Smith Auditorium. The New York Historical Society is a preeminent educational and research institution that is home to both New York City's oldest museum and one of the nation's most distinguished research libraries. This podcast, recorded live on Tuesday, December 18th, 2018, is a part of the Bernard and Irene Schwartz Distinguished Speakers Series. In this talk, Professor Randall Kennedy discusses the desegregation of the U.S. Armed Forces after decades of severe and widespread racial discrimination, and how this change preceded integration in U.S. society as a whole. So it's wonderful to be here. Let's turn to the subject. Here's the question that I want to um, address. What did activists fighting anti-black mistreatment encounter in 1950 with respect to the military? They found themselves in the middle of a battle in which their side had begun to make slow but decisive advances against fierce opposition. On the cusp of America's entrance into World War II, the Army Air Corps and the Marines excluded blacks altogether. The Navy admitted them, but only as stewards. The Army drafted blacks separately, imposed a quota on them, segregated them in training, and relegated them to non-combat duties. Throughout the military, officials tried assiduously to avoid situations in which a black soldier could dictate orders to a white one. These policies derive from a hodgepodge of folklore, rumor, prejudice, and tradition. One set of rationales focused on the alleged racial failings of Negroes. Blacks were deemed to be too aggressive, brutish, and unstable to trust under arms. At the same time, they were deemed to be too submissive, lazy, and unintelligent to trust. Here's something from the Army War College written in 1936. Quote, As an individual, the Negro was docile, tractable, lighthearted, carefree, and good-natured. He is careless, shiftless, irresponsible, and secretive. He resents censure and is best handled with praise and by ridicule. He is unmoral, untruthful, and his sense of right doing is relatively inferior. The Negro is cheerful, loyal, and usually uncomplaining if reasonably well-fed. He has a musical nature and a marked sense of rhythm. That's from the Army War College in 1936. Now, while it is difficult to take such statements seriously nowadays, in the 1930s and 1940s, many, indeed most whites, perceived such impressions as common sense. A second set of rationales focused on the anticipated response of whites if segregation and kindred policies were abolished. Authorities feared that military efficiency would be compromised if the armed forces deviated from the white supremacist assumptions and practices prevalent in American civilian society because whites would react negatively. They would resent being placed in close quarters with Negroes, abhor performing duties with blacks, 
and rebel against subordination to African Americans bearing higher military rank. Defenders of traditional military racial protocol also maintained that any initiatives that forged ahead of a consensus within white public opinion would undermine the legitimacy of the military in the eyes of its most important constituency. Public opinion surveys in the early 1940s substantiated the impression that by a wide margin, whites preferred military segregation. One survey, for instance, found that 88% of whites and 38% of blacks expressed a preference for segregation in the military ranks. Recollections of the military experiences of blacks during World War II was an important feature of the mid-century, of the mid-century social landscape. Memories of racist mistreatment were anguishing. Here's one. During the furious Nazi counterattack that came to be known as the Battle of the Bulge, the United States Army, desperate for replacements, called upon black volunteers for hazardous combat duty. Over 2,000 volunteered, despite the fact that as a condition for service, Negro soldiers had to agree to a demotion in rank to avoid any circumstance in which a black soldier in the field might outrank a white one. Even this limited grant of opportunity to black soldiers aggravated racists. From the comfort of his home, one civilian wrote as follows to a United States senator, quote, I am a typical American, a Southerner, and 27 years of age, and never in this world will I be convinced that race mixing in any field is good. I am loyal to my country, and I know but reverence for her flag, but... I shall never submit to fight beneath that banner with a Negro by my side. Rather, I should die a thousand times and see old glory trampled in the dirt, never to rise again, than to see this beloved country of ours become degraded by race mongrels, a throwback to the blackest specimen from the wilds. That letter was written to Theodore Bilbo, an outrageous Negrophobe from Mississippi. The author of the letter was Robert Byrd. Robert Byrd, who represented West Virginia, becoming the longest-serving United States senator in American history. Now, it must be said that later in his life, later in his life, Byrd apologized and apologized at considerable length and considerable feeling about that letter that he wrote. But he did write that letter, and the letter is indicative of what racial reformers had to confront in this era. Bad as things were for black sailors and soldiers within the service, things were often even worse outside of military installations. Negroes in uniform evoked widespread hostility and fear, especially in the South, where many whites suspected that blacks in the military had been spoiled, had forgotten their place, and had become uppity. 
Black service members were monitored closely to make sure that they adhered to Jim Crow etiquette. If they declined to do so, they risked being beaten, arrested, or even killed. The presence of blacks in the armed forces seemed to evoke in some white civilians an especially urgent insistence on upholding local traditions, despite the discombobulations of war. Pleading extenuating circumstances, a white officer tried to get a white sheriff to relax segregationist protocols so that Negro soldiers could be fed. The sheriff refused. Quote, I don't give a good goddamn if them niggers is going to Tokyo. They ain't going to eat in Atlanta, Georgia with white folk. Negative reactions to the prospect or sight of Negroes in uniform caused the War Department to encounter difficulty in finding locations at which blacks could receive military training. Oscoda, Michigan, requested the War Department to remove black soldiers stationed there out of apprehension that they would create social and racial problems in that community. Tucson, Arizona, refused an offer of $50,000 to build a black USO center because city authorities did not want black soldiers on leave to visit there. These were the memories that burdened blacks at mid-century as they contemplated their relationship to the military. Then something strange and remarkable happened. Between 1944 and 1954, the armed services found themselves in the unusual position of leading America in thought and practice in terms of racial policy. Segregation was uprooted in the armed forces before it was uprooted in much of civilian America. How did that happen? Three events were key. President Harry Truman's Executive Order 9981, the actions of the committee President Truman appointed to monitor the implementation of the Executive Order, and the Korean War. First, the Executive Order. On July 26, 1948, President Truman issued Executive Order 9981. It declared that, quote, there shall be equality of treatment and opportunity for all persons in the, arm, in the armed services without regard to race. And he also said that this policy shall be put into effect as rapidly as possible, having due regard to the time required to effectuate any necessary changes without impairing efficiency or morale. What prompted uh, Harry Truman to promulgate this executive order. It certainly went beyond anything, for instance, that uh, President Roosevelt had done. So what was, what was prompting Truman to act in this way? There were a variety of things. I'll mention three. One was political calculation. I mentioned that the executive order was promulgated July 26, 1948. What else was going on in uh, 1948? There was a presidential election, yes. There was a presidential election. And indeed, the person who all the odds makers thought was going to win the election was a New Yorker, Thomas Dewey, Governor Thomas Dewey. 
Everybody thought that Governor Dewey was going to win. And in fact, the Democrats thought that Thomas Dewey was going to win. And uh, one of uh, President Truman's closest advisors, Clark Clifford, said to him, you're going to lose unless you can make certain things happen. And one of the things that Clifford said had to happen, he said, you could tell, he told Truman, you're going to have to have a big black vote. Black people have been leaving the South, and they've been moving to the Midwest. They've been moving to the West. They've been moving in some of the northern Atlantic states. It's going to be a very hard-fought campaign. But if you can get a big black turnout, you might be able to turn this thing around. And you're going to have to really do some things to make black people come out and vote for you. Well, Truman did those things. What did Truman do? Well, um, Truman, first president to ever speak to the NAACP, Harry S. Truman. Harry S. Truman was the first black, uh, was the first presidential candidate to ever campaign in Harlem. Uh, Truman appointed the, um, his committee, that, uh, the Civil Rights Committee. And Truman promulgated this executive order. So p- political calculation was part of what was going on. It wasn't just all political calculation, though. Personal conviction. Truman was an interesting character. Um, he was racist. He was racist all his life. In fact, one of the reasons that uh, he became the vice presidential, one of the reasons why he was put on the ticket the last, uh, on the, in, the, in the, the, the fourth time that uh, FDR ran for the presidency, had to do with feelings of race. Uh, Truman was thought to be sound on the race question, that is, was thought to be a racist. Um, and he was, in part. But he also changed over time a bit. And more importantly, even though he was racist, he, um, he had thought he had been in the army himself in World War I. And he did have a sense of certain decencies. And in the aftermath of World War II, his sense of certain decencies was affronted by the atrocities that befell black servicemen. There was one in particular, this one's very close to my heart. I'm a South Carolinian. I was born in Columbia, South Carolina. And one of the most notorious examples of racially motivated violence against black servicemen occurred in South Carolina, occurred in Batesburg, South Carolina. Isaac Woodard had just been discharged from the Army, just been discharged, got on a bus, Greyhound bus, to go home to be reunited with his wife after having been in the Pacific for three years. He gets on a bus, 
gets in a tiff with the bus driver. The bus driver calls the chief of police in Batesburg, South Carolina. Chief of police comes, beats him, and then jabs in his eyes with a baton and blinds him. And this was brought to the attention of uh, President Truman. And this really got to him. This really got to him. And this personal conviction was part of what was in the backdrop of the executive order. But even with political calculation, even with political, you know, personal conviction, that wasn't enough. Because obviously there was, you know, racist pressure pushing the other way. So activists, racial reformers got into the act as well. One of whom, one of whom was A. Philip Randolph. A. Philip Randolph organized the Committee Against Jim Crow in Military Service and Training and really pushed on this issue. Testifying before the Senate Armed Services Committee in 1948, Randolph maintained that, quote, Negroes are in no mood to shoulder a a gun for democracy abroad so long as they are denied democracy here at home. They resent, he averred, the idea of fighting for being, the idea of fighting for being drafted in a Jim Crow army. Negroes demanded, he insisted, full unqualified first class citizenship. Upping the ante, Randolph said the following, quote, I personally will advise Negroes to refuse to fight as slaves for a democracy they cannot possess and enjoy. I shall call upon all Negro veterans to join this this civil disobedience movement and to recruit their younger brothers in an organized refusal to register and be drafted. Many veterans, bitter over Army Jim Crow, have indicated that they will act spontaneously in this fashion. Never again, they say with finality. This caused a real ruckus. Republican Senator Wayne Morse of Oregon, himself a racial liberal, took umbrage at Randolph's remarks, claiming that carried out in wartime, Randolph's threat would constitute treason. Randolph's response was unflinching, quote, I would be willing to face that on the theory that we are serving a higher law than the law which applies to the act of treason. Well, President Truman issued the executive um, order. And actually, when President Truman issued it, it did not satisfy A. Philip Randolph. Let me read you that order again. Let me read you the, 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 the important sentence in the order. The order declared, quote, there shall be equality of treatment an opportunity for all persons in the armed services without regard to race. Now, you might think to yourself, hey, shouldn't that satisfy everybody? I mean, what else, you know, what what else do you want? Notice that there is no mention of segregation. Now, when we look back, we think, well, if you're taught, if, you know, I mean, if, if, Equality of treatment and opportunity necessarily means an end to segregation. That's from our perspective. 
but we're living on the other side of Brown versus Board of Education and all that came afterwards. In 1948, as a matter of federal constitutional law, segregation was viewed as being perfectly compatible with equality of treatment. Remember, the theory of segregation was, well, it's just separating people. It's not, it's not, it's not hurting anyone. It's not making anybody superior and inferior. White people are separated just like black people are separated. Even Stephen. A. Philip Randolph was wise to that, and he says, hey, listen, I, you know, I'm not impressed by this. I think, in fact, he said, I think that this, I think that the president is obfuscating. Why didn't he say anything specifically about segregation? Well, when Truman was confronted with this, Truman made it clear. Truman had somebody, had a senator actually go talk with uh, A. Philip Randolph and said basically to him, listen, Truman is again, Truman wants to get rid of segregation in the armed forces. And he's going to create a committee because this executive order had within it a provision saying in order to implement the executive order, he was going to create, the president was going to create a committee for that purpose. And, and Randolph was told, just watch and see who the president puts on this committee. The president's committee on equality of treatment and opportunity became known by the name of its chair, Charles Fahey a Georgia-born lawyer who had previously served as general counsel of the National Labor Relations Board, and he had also been uh, United States Solicitor General, very distinguished jurist. Joining Fahey were three white civilians and two black civilians. For about 18 months, the Fahey Committee collected information, negotiated with military officials, recommended reforms, and then pressured the military to accept and implement the reforms recommended. On May 22, 1950, the Fahey Committee submitted to President Truman Freedom to Serve, a report on the committee's methodology, findings, and progress in furthering the aims of the executive order. Three features surrounding the committee are striking. Um, first, was its theory regarding the best way to move the military. Second, the Army's distinctive recalcitrance. And third, the changes that the committee facilitated. First, although the Fahey Committee enjoyed the backing of the president, it avoided deploying unilaterally his authority. It maintained from the outset that changes in policy and ethos would have a better chance of achieving real traction by inculcating a spirit of collaboration. The committee believed that reforms would be more readily accepted if they represented decisions mutually agreed upon. In seeking common ground, the Fahey Committee maintained that in deference to the armed forces, the committee would base its recommendations not simply or even predominantly on considerations of civilian values, but rather 
on considerations of military efficiency. The committee posed two questions with stark directness. Quote, do Negroes have the mental and technical qualifications to be used in the full range of military jobs? And, quote, shall Negroes be utilized only in Negro units? Many military leaders answered these questions in the negative. The Fahey Committee challenged them. Meeting the military on its own premise and considering these questions strictly from the viewpoint of military efficiency, the committee had serious doubts as to the reasoning by which the military had traditionally arrived at its policies of limited utilization of black soldiers and sailors and racial segregation. The committee conceded that, in general, blacks as a group had less education and fewer skills than whites as a group. The committee rejected the conclusion, however, that group differences justified excluding blacks categorically from certain jobs, no matter what an individual African-American's level of experience, skill, or potential. Insofar as as a military service refused a single Negro the technical training and Uh, and job for which he was qualified, by just so much did the service waste potential skills and impair its own effectiveness. Again, claiming to prioritize the military mission, the Fahey Committee maintained that quite apart from the question of equal opportunity, the committee did not believe that the country or the military service could afford the human wastage involved in segregation. With respect to racial separation, the Fahey Committee confronted the argument that desegregating the armed forces would pose a grave risk of lowered morale within the ranks. The Fahey Committee responded by referring to the experience of the Navy and the Air Force. In 1946, the Navy lifted racial eligibility requirements that had restricted opportunities available to Negro soldiers, Negro sailors permitting them to perform jobs that brought them into ongoing contact with whites. The Fahey Committee found that this reform occasioned no substantial increase in racial conflict and no substantial diminution of morale. White and Negro Negro sailors at times exchanged words or blows, the committee observed, but these were flare-ups between individuals. There had been... No racial animosity. That's according to the Faith Committee. This showed, according to the committee, how respect created by individuals through competence on the job would facilitate the accommodation of the two races and thus act to break down artificial barriers. In the immediate post-war years, the Air Force, too, adopted a more open, competitive policy that led to a considerable decrease in officially mandated racial separation. The committee reported that commanders testified that racial incidents had diminished rather than increased since the new policy had gone into effect. It noted that some officers who candidly stated their personal preference for the old ways nonetheless volunteered that the new policies benefited the service and caused less trouble. The Army, the largest of the services and the one with the most black participation, showed itself to be distinctly resistant to reform. While the leadership of the Navy and Air Force pulled their branches away from segregation, 
the leadership of the army sought to perfect segregation. It sought, in the words of the committee, to create a separate Negro army which would have the same variety of units and require the same range of skills as the white army. Moreover, the army leadership not only intensified its embrace of segregation, it also reconfirmed its commitment to limiting the black presence in the army to no more than the proportion of African Americans in the general population. The Fahey Committee answered that a policy of racial separation by its very nature defeated the core aspiration to create the most effective fighting force possible. Segregation, the committee was convinced, forced inefficiency in two ways. By requiring skilled blacks to serve in racial units, the army lost skills which could find no place in Negro organizations. On the other hand, by concentrating large numbers of unskilled blacks in combat units, segregation multiplied inefficiency. The Army resisted the Fahey Committee to such an extent that the committee's executive secretary, Edwin W. Kenworthy, suspected that the Army might lie or withhold pertinent information. To address this potentiality, he enlisted assistance from black Army personnel who brought to the committee's attention instances in which racist officers sought surreptitiously to thwart reform. Kenworthy left his office door unlocked so that blacks could anonymously pass him tips, information that Kenworthy sometimes leaked to the press in his ongoing wrangling with the Army. The Fahey Committee succeeded in nudging the Army to follow the Navy and the Air Force in pursuing a post-war racial policy that was considerably less biased than what had previously obtained. At the urging of the Fahey Committee, the Army announced the opening up of all Army jobs to qualified personnel regardless of race, the opening up of all Army schools to qualified personnel regardless of race, the rescinding of regulations that restricted the assignment of Negro soldiers to black units, and the abolition of the Negro quota. The Army, however, did not comprehensively abandon segregation. It merely abandoned segments of discriminatory policy. Moreover, the Army's commitment to its announced reforms was shaky, at least initially. At the same time that the Army pro proclaimed that it had renounced the Negro quota, the Secretary of the Army quietly finagled from President Truman permission to reimpose the quota in the event that a sudden uptick in Negro enlistment produced too many black recruits, or what the Secretary termed a disproportionate balance of racial strength. Furthermore, despite the upbeat public appraisals of progress, some of the members of the Fahey Committee were privately anxious about whether the Army's representations would actually be effectuated. Lester Granger, one of the two black members of the committee, warned President Truman that the Army would have to be subjected to constant vigilance. Kenworthy was even more skeptical complaining that the Army intended to do as little as possible toward implementing the new policy. The inertia that often stymies reform, however, was profoundly shaken when, 
On June 25, 1950, the United States became engaged in the Korean War. The Fahey Committee had theorized that a desegregated military would be a more efficient military. The Korean War put that theory to a test. More military onlookers than ever before were persuaded of the rightness of that theory by what they saw in the crucible of combat. Early in the war, field commanders facing shortages in personnel began on their own, without authorization from higher authorities, to mix white and black soldiers in the same combat units. The prevalence of these ad hoc assignments increased as the need for manpower remained acute and favorable impressions of the racially mixed units circulated. By May 1951, blacks and whites were fighting together in 61% of the infantry units in Korea. To be sure, opposition to desegregation persisted. One important opponent, for example, was General Douglas MacArthur, head of the Far East Command. Military leaders who favored desegregation, however, began increasingly to, to supplant those who did not. When MacArthur was relieved of his command by President Truman, he was replaced by General Matthew B. Ridgway, a strong proponent of desegregation. After Ridgway took command, he obtained authorization from on high for developments that had already been put in motion below. Desegregation in Korea was accompanied by desegregation elsewhere, including bases in Japan, Europe, and even in some locales in the United States. One particularly interesting site of racial experimentation was Fort Jackson outside of Columbia, South Carolina. Designated as the central processing point for soldiers from 11 mostly southern states, Fort Jackson lacked facilities to segregate trainees whose numbers surged due to the abandonment of racial quotas and the uptick in wartime enlistments occasioned by the Korean War. The camp commander addressed the difficulty by dropping segregation and its expensive and cumbersome redundancies. Eliminated were the racially, racially separate barracks and mess halls and training sessions of the old Jim Crow regime. Now, with African Americans sometimes constituting as many as one-third of the trainees, white and black soldiers shared barracks and meals, instruction, and sports. There emerged, unsurprisingly, pushback against desegregation. While unprecedented racial mixing transpired at Fort Jackson, officials in Clarendon County, South Carolina, were engaged in defending Jim Crow public education against challenges from black parents who resorted to litigation on behalf of their children in a lawsuit that became one of the cases known to the world as Brown versus Board of Education. Learning about plans for racial reform at Fort Jackson, a South Carolina judge and World War I veteran wrote a letter of protest to the Secretary of Defense. The judge announced that he would not blame any white man who burned down buildings or shot insolent black officers 
after having been forced to train, eat, sleep, and be mixed with Negroes while sick. Senator Richard B. Russell of Georgia proposed legislation that would have given inductees and enlistees the right to choose whether they wish to serve in a racially mixed or racially exclusive unit. A few other politicians tried as well to make opposition to military desegregation into an electoral asset. Running against incumbent Senator Olin Johnston, South Carolina Governor Strom Thurmond accused his adversary of having done too little to oppose President Truman's military policy. Remarkable, however, is not that there was opposition to military desegregation, but that the influence of the opposition was so limited. Thurman lost. Russell's proposal to give servicemen freedom of choice foundered. Southern white politicians, backed by an aroused white electorate, fought civilian desegregation tenaciously in schooling, transportation, recreation, and other domains. But there was no similarly impassioned campaign of massive resistance to military desegregation, even though eliminating Jim Crow arrangements for Army personnel at military bases entailed dramatic changes in racial routines, including the spectacle of blacks and whites sharing facilities for eating and housing and multiracial schooling including the even more provocative spectacle of black soldiers issuing orders to white subordinates. Now, this is really quite remarkable. We've gone from 1944 to 1954. 1954 is a landmark year, right? 1954 is the year of Brown versus Board of Education. And Brown versus Board of Education, the United States Supreme Court, begins the process of invalidating segregation in civilian society in the United States. But by 1954, the United States military, military was way down the road of desegregation. On October 30th, 1954, in a progress report on integration in the armed services, the Department of Defense announced that Negro personnel are now utilized on the basis of individual merit and proficiency in the meeting of the needs of the services. The report expressly stated that every all-Negro unit had been abolished and impliedly indicated that there existed no more white units from which blacks were excluded. According to the report, the military no longer sponsored racial assignments. All sectors of the armed forces were open to all eligible candidates, free of invidious racial discriminations. In the words of a New York Times editorial, segregation in the armed services is legally extinct. Now, of course, in 1954, everything wasn't roses in terms of race in the military. Far from it. Of course, there were many struggles to come. But in 1954, the United States military was quite far advanced 
of civilian society. And that was a really quite remarkable feature of the social scene in America at mid-century. Thank you very much. Can you describe the extent of racial diversity among the senior officer corps of the various branches of the military today? No, I can't give you a really good response to that. My sense is, I'll give you my impression, uh, but I, you know, I'm, 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 I'm leavening it by saying straight out, it's not, I don't have a, a real detailed response. My, my impression, frankly, is that ever since the period that I described in my talk, the military has been out in front in terms of American society. Um, again, just as a regular newspaper reading person without having done, you know, sort of in-depth research, my impression is that uh, the black officer corps in the military is actually quite impressive. One thing comes to mind just immediately. It's, sort of, it's very interesting. There was a time not so long ago when the uh, elevation, for instance, of a, of a black person to a high position in the military, you know, that'd be front page news. I mean, that would, you know, that would, you know, that'd be, you know, that'd be a headline in Ebony or Jet. Was, you know, I mean, I'd know about it. The new superintendent of West Point is a black American. I haven't seen not one story about this. Last year, I gave, actually I gave a talk at West Point. Very impressive place, I must say. Cadets really just thoroughly impressive. The chief cadet last year the number one cadet, and they believe in hierarchy, so you know who the number one cadet is. Black woman, Rhodes Scholar now, she's over in England now. But I mean, my sense is, and that's in, that's in the Army, by the way. You know, remember what I said in my remarks. The Army was the most backward. Well, actually, it wasn't the most. No, I take that back. The Marines were the most. But the Army was pretty bad. But if you, if you want, my, my sense is that the armed services, um, for a good long while, again, and not, not whitewashing anything, the armed services, I'm sure, the armed services are part of America. America has a white race problem. I'm sure that there are race problems in the military, but the armed services... Uh, have have been out in front, and with respect to, I would I would venture to say my hypothesis would be that if one were to take a look at various domains of American life and see where has there been the most opportunity for upward advancement, my sense is that the military would rate way high. Didn't the Army learn of the selflessness and valor of blacks in World War I? 
Harlem Hellfighters, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. You would have thought. No, I mean, it's a tragic... Um, My father was a, a veteran. In fact, I, I talked in my remarks about uh, Fort Jackson. My parents met when my father was stationed at Fort Jackson. And um, in talking with my father throughout, throughout my life, he, he's, he's passed away now. He passed away about 15 years ago. But throughout my life, I would talk with him about various things. And... Um, my father was part of the pessimistic tradition in American life. And seriously, I mean, I, I think I actually gave a talk here about a year or two ago about the optimistic tradition, the pessimistic tradition. The optimistic tradition says that, yes, we shall overcome. The pessimistic tradition says, no, we shall not overcome. My father was in the pessimistic tradition. And um, for a variety of reasons, but I think at the, at, at the top, at the top would be the searing experience he faced as a person wearing the uniform a member of the Army of the United States and seeing prisoners of war treated with more respect, just basic decency, than black soldiers who were wearing the uniform of the United States. That was something that he, I mean, he throughout his life, that, that, that just, he, he could not get over that. Now, remarkably, I mean, you know, experience are funny things. People take away different things. I, my, I've, I've also, the, the, the leading civil rights attorney in South Carolina was a great man, Matthew Perry, the leading civil rights attorney in the 1950s and 1960s, was a black man who also, suffered tremendous humiliation, but took away a different lesson, was a thoroughgoing optimist. But the point is that one would have thought that there would have been some learning from World War I, but there wasn't a whole lot. And in fact, in the period that I'm talking about, there was a recognition of that. So when World War II came around, Black people said, we remember World War I. We thought that we would serve, we would come back, and the opportunity would open up because of our unstinting support of the war effort. And instead, we were mobbed. We were lynched. And so when World War II came around, what was the, what was the banner? Double V. Victory abroad, victory at home. So there was learning that went on because of World War I, but unfortunately, there wasn't enough, at least on the part of people in authority in the government. 
Do you think that diversity of today's United States Armed Forces will play a role in easing tensions between varying racial communities? Yes. Yes, I do. Um, again, this gets back to the actually the first question. In the, um, if one asks the question, in the United States of America, where is the most just, you know, where, where, where's, where, what's the example of the most um, uh, thoroughgoing, intimate, interracial, you know, um, cooperation, interaction? Again, the military, military bases? In part, it has to do with the hierarchical nature of the military. Um, but whatever the reasons in terms of where people live, in terms of a domain in which it is quite ordinary for people of color to be giving directives to white people, if one takes a look at the um, uh, percentages of uh, interracial dating, interracial marriage, again, the military. So, you know, do I think that actually the military is an engine of learning, an engine of experience that will actually have an effect, a, a, a broadening effect in our in our society, the answer is yes, in my view. The 6888 Central Postal Directory Battalion are finally being honored with their own monument in Kansas. Why do you think it took so long for these women to be recognized? Um, you know, people just don't know stuff. When I say people, I don't. I'm keeping this. Uh, I said I learned things from the audience. There you go. I, I don't. I don't. I don't know the story of of, of this unit. Um, you know, one of the reasons why it's important, frankly, to have um, events like this. People, there's lots of information. Um, people forget. Nobody's trying to forget, but people do. There's lots of things going on in society. At certain points, certain things get a lot of attention. And then things that don't get attention get buried. They, you know, and sometimes they're buried for a long time. Also, of course, um, and this again, it's, it's, it's very sad. It's very sad. But certain aspects of our history have been you know, purposefully suppressed. And we're seeing, we've seen it in the past few years. I mean, in the past few years, the past few administrations, in the past few administrations, there's obviously been an effort 
in the military services to pay homage to people who did heroic things and those heroic actions were just suppressed, forgotten about, ignored. And one of the things going on in our in the society now, and obviously, you know, there's there's one of the good things going on is an effort to focus a sharper, more intense light so that we have a fuller, more realistic understanding of our past, including the contributions made by people who have um, previously uh, been uh, overlooked. Question. My father, here's a comment. My father fought in World War I in France. The Negro soldiers were limited to being orderlies and servants, but the French were desperate for fighting men and didn't care what color they were. My father fought with the French in the trenches and was wounded in the shoulder. Is there any documentation of black soldiers fighting from the French army during this time? Yes, there is, for those who are interested in World War I. Yes, there is. And in fact, I mean, it's, it's absolutely heartbreaking. The black soldiers in France were called by the French, enfants perdus, the lost children, because the French recognized that the Americans basically abandoned the black soldiers. General Pershing, now General Pershing, right? General Pershing, one of the greats in the history of the American military, right? General Pershing went to France and told the French high command, do not trust, do not honor, do not shake the hands of the black soldiers. He spread all sorts of slander against the black soldiers. And the French actually recognized the enfant perdu, and the French recognize black soldiers. And, of course, that in and of itself had consequences because it came back to the United States that the French and some of the other white Europeans uh, recognized and treated the black soldiers with honor. And that led to resentment. In fact, that led to the deaths of uh, black soldiers who were targeted because it was thought that that sort of, that, you know, that sort of uh, action toward them spoiled them. Do you think with the success of films like Hidden Figures, more stories of desegregation, the accomplishments of black servicemen and women will be told on the big screen? Would this help? with the visibility of this often ignored part of history? My answer to that, yes, yes. I think that, again, as we, we see it. I mean, every year you see, you know, uh, these are really quite remarkable stories if you think about it. I mean, it, it's remarkable that there haven't been more movies. Well, what would be a better movie? Can you imagine something more dramatic? That story about the Battle of the Bulge? I mean, really. I still can't get my head around it. Here you have people fighting 
they're told, we're looking for volunteers. We're looking for volunteers. We're looking for volunteers to go face bullets. This is the battle of the bulge, for goodness sakes. We want, we want volunteers for combat duty. Oh, and by the way, if you're a sergeant, you've got to take off your stripes because, of course, we can't have black soldiers outranking white soldiers. And then you have 2,000 black soldiers volunteer? I think you can make a pretty good movie out of that. And frankly, I think, you know, with time, there will be such. I'm getting the hook. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening. To learn more about current exhibitions and live programming, follow the New York Historical Society on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at NY History, or visit us at nyhistory.org.